Welcome to Stories of Iceland. This is a bit of a content warning. The subject of this episode is a well-known anti-Semite. While I don't go into any details about his exact views, I want listeners to be aware of this. June has been a busy month for me. So busy that I haven't even added the latest episode to the public feed. Of course, my Patreon subscribers have had the episode for weeks, but various distractions have kept me from doing the work of adding it to the main site. Speaking of Patreon, you can join my supporters at patreon.com slash stories of Iceland. There is also a PayPal button at storiesoviceland.com. Thanks to all my supporters, especially Brianna, a friend of the podcast. But this is Stories of Iceland and this is episode 51, Bobby Fischer in Iceland. Iceland is in the North Atlantic. Its capital city is Reykjavik. One of the stories that is repeatedly told and retold again and again with different protagonists is that of the mad genius. This story is both a glorification of mental illness and an excuse for talented people to behave badly. When a person reaches that status of genius, when society, or at least a portion of society, thinks of a person as being extraordinary talented, they find they don't have to play by the same rules as everybody else. Everything from eccentricity to literal criminal behavior is excused. The status of genius is in fact reinforced when they go against societal norms. We aren't supposed to judge these geniuses as we would ordinary people. We should just let them get on with their work and sweep everything else under the rug. The genius often comes to believe these things about themselves. The worst of them find ways to abuse their status in horrific ways. Those who need actual help, whether for mental illness or substance abuse, become convinced that if they lose that element of themselves, they will lose their genius, lose what makes them special. Chess has its own version of this myth. The earliest example of such a genius was the American Paul Morphy, like Murphy but with an O. Born in 1837 in New Orleans, Morphy was a child prodigy who had become a notable local chess player at nine and over the next decade or so became a well-known player nationally 
and stirred interest overseas as well. At 21, he traveled around Europe, battling many of the continent's best players. Paul Morphy never became the world champion for the simple reason that there was no formal competition at the time. Nonetheless, he was hailed as the best in the world. Soon after Morphy's return to the United States, he decided to abandon chess and focus on his law career. This career did not take off, in part because of the American Civil War. We don't actually know what he did during the war, mostly because he seems to have done nothing of note. After the war, Morphy again tried to build his legal career and failed. So he spent the rest of his life living off his inherited wealth and shunning offers of playing chess. It was during those years that he began to show various signs of mental instability before dying before he turned 50. The legend of Paul Morphy I read when I was a teenager was of a child chess prodigy who became so obsessed with chess that he lost his mind. This was based on a few stories that seemed true, added with others that were simply made up, and then analyzed by pseudo-scientific means. A century after Paul Murphy, there rose another American chess child prodigy, Robert James Fisher. Earlier this year, I listened to an episode of the Behind the Bastards podcast. It was centered on former world chess champion Bobby Fischer and chronicled his long history of anti-Semitic comments and beliefs. What actually surprised me was that, contrary to what I had been led to believe by the media, he had been racist since his youth. This was not a case of sudden-onset anti-Semitism. I wondered if I had just ignored critical coverage of his views but when I searched an online archive of Icelandic newspapers, I found only a single mention of his anti-Semitic views in a minor weekly paper from 1992. Of course, there were numerous reports of his opinions printed after his fall from grace in 2001. Bobby Fischer's importance in the Cold War meant that he was shielded from bad publicity. This was relatively easy before the age of the internet. A lot of people knew what kind of person he was, but decided to keep it quiet. I have decided not to include Fisher's various anti-Semitic remarks. Those can be found on the internet, for instance on Wikipedia and the aforementioned episode of Behind the Bastards. I do have to make it clear that when I say anti-Semitic, I do not mean that he was simply being critical of Israel in relation to their treatment of Palestinians. Neither was he the type of anti-Semite who obfuscates their views while using dog-whistle terms designed to alert those in the know. Bobby Fischer said stuff which echoed Hitler. He did not disguise his view in any real way. He was a raging anti-Semite and a Holocaust denier. In 1972, the reigning world champion of chess was Boris Spassky, an affable cerebral person. He was the tenth player to hold the title since the formalization of the world championship under the governance of FIDE, the International Chess Organization, in 1949. 
Like the nine champions that came before him, he was from the Soviet Union. Since there were no direct conflicts between the superpowers during the Cold War, it was often a war of propaganda. A game of hockey wasn't just a game, it was a miniature war. The numbers of gold medals in the Olympics were seen as representing the strength of the United States and the Soviet Union. Sports were important because they were easily quantifiable, with winners and losers. But the propaganda war was also fought within the arts. Musicians and dancers were seen as symbols of their respective countries and the ideology which governed them. In chess, there was no real contest. Soviet players dominated the game. They were supported by the government. They had an archive that could be consulted on almost every single game played at the upper levels of chess. For many, this domination was seen as suspect. In 1962, an up-and-coming American player accused the Russians of cheating, collusion, of arranging the outcomes of their games to keep him from winning a tournament. This young man was, of course, Bobby Fischer. He might have been only 19 at the time, but he had first won the U.S. championship at 14 and reached the level of Grandmaster at 15. For the next decade, Fisher gained an international reputation which reached outside the realms of regular chess enthusiasts. He was an amazing player, but he was also a loudmouth who complained of every conceivable thing he could think of. By 1972, Fisher had climbed to the top. What Rod Laver is to tennis, what Jack Nicklaus is to golf, that's what Bobby Fisher is to chess. And on June the 22nd, unless arrangements fall apart and in the stormy world of chess anything can happen, Bobby Fisher of the United States will finally meet Boris Spassky of the Soviet Union in Belgrade, Yugoslavia for the chess championship of the world. At stake... Immense prestige for the Russians who jealously guard their reputation as the country of the chess masters. They've held the world title for 35 years, plus a purse of $138,500, the richest prize for a head-to-head confrontation in any sport but boxing. Mike Wallace's caveat was well-placed. Arrangements did fall apart. The match was not played in Yugoslavia. The wranglings back and forth were mostly centered on one thing. Money. Though it is unlikely that Boris Spassky was immune to the lure of a reward, Bobby Fischer was the one who fought for an increased amount. Things again seemed settled for a while. The match was set to be held in Reykjavik, Iceland. Spassky arrived on time. Fischer didn't even show up for the open ceremonies on July the 1st. It is said that in the end... Henry Kissinger, then the United States National Security Advisor, personally called Fisher to encourage him to go. More important, though, in my opinion at least, was the intervention of a British banker who doubled the prize money. Finally, Bobby Fisher arrived in Iceland. The first game was rescheduled for July 11th, and Spassky showed up on time and made his first move, facing an empty seat. Fisher showed up nine minutes late, played the game, but lost. 
The challenger claimed to have been distracted by the film cameras which recorded that game. He demanded that they'd be removed, and when this was rejected, he simply didn't show up for the next game. At this point, it looked as though the match was over. Fisher was said to be planning to leave the country, but had been persuaded to stay, and there were even rumors of a second phone call from Henry Kissinger. The third game was held in a back room, usually reserved for table tennis. This was to be Fisher's first win against Baski. From this point, the going was mostly smooth. The games took place in the main room, but the cameras were removed to keep Fisher happy. A British report shines a light on the mood in Iceland at the time. The great thing about this world championship is the feeling you get that just anything might happen. The people here at the back door of the sports stadium in Reykjavik are not just waiting to catch a glimpse of the Grand Masters. They know they just could be in at the start of yet another chess sensation if either man fails to turn up. The matches take up the front and back pages of local newspapers, though not in the same way. In fact, Spassky and Fisher are getting here the treatment usually reserved for royalty. Icelanders live for chess. This is a tournament between bus drivers from Sweden and transport workers in Reykjavik. The match was arranged to give the Swedes yet another excuse, if one was needed, to come for the World Championship. And the surprising thing here is the way that Fisher's brilliant chess has won him back his popularity, despite his earlier troubles. But in chess, as in any other game, all the world loves a winner. And if Fischer can beat Spassky, he'll be given the freedom of Iceland. Before the start of the match, Icelandic newspapers were split by their political leanings, and public opinion most likely echoed this. The fact that Fischer showed up late was seen as unsportsmanlike and even as disrespecting the host country. There are numerous videos available online from the Associated Press. Listening to the reception the players get when they show up for the games and how it evolves as the match goes on makes it clear how Icelanders feel about the players. At first, Spassky gets major applause while Fischer is met with sporadic clapping or even jeers. When Fischer begins to win and show his talent, his reception gets warmer while Spassky gets less enthusiastic and more polite. I think I can dispense with the spoiler warning. Apologies to all of you who are just about to catch up on the events of 1972. Bobby Fischer won the match with 12.5 points against Baski's 8.5. When he returned to the Soviet Union, Boris Baski was met with calculated indifference. Bobby Fischer returned to the United States a hero who had won a major victory in the global war against communism. He made various television appearances, 
notably on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and a Bob Hope special where he played himself. There was a lot in the papers about you holding out for a bigger cut of the purse. Were you misquoted? All that talk about money, 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 money. The important thing to me is what a person gets out of playing the game. And what's that? Money. (laughs) Fisher was also a guest on Dick Cavett's talk show in 1972. Appearing with him were the performer Sandy Duncan and consumer advocate Ralph Nader. While Cavett was focused on Fisher, Sandy Duncan peeked at a prepared list of questions and interjected. Okay. <laughs> Question we, number... What are you going to say? I'm going to say... It says here, Are all chess masters egomaniacs? <laughs> oh, yeah. He's right. I was saving that. You were saving that and I blew it for you. No, uh, it, is, it must be true, though. I mean, it must be because it involves your whole uh, life. If you're a chess master, you don't do anything else, do you? This is true. It does attract an egocentric crowd, you know? Yeah. It's just you and the board and your opponent and trying to prove something. Yeah. For Iceland, the Spassky Fischer Championship in 1972 had a lasting influence. Chess had always been popular here, but interest in the game became supercharged. When people referred to the duel of the century, everyone understood what it meant. When I was growing up in the 80s and into the 90s, chess was a national interest, even called the national sport of Iceland. We watched chess matches on live television. Almost every Icelander knew who the current world champion was and could name, in the very least, a few grandmasters. When Anatoly Karpov and Garry Kasparov battled for supremacy in the 80s in back-to-back championship matches, many of us were firmly behind one or the other. I believe Iceland still holds the top spot for the number of chess grandmasters. Per capita, of course. This is a direct consequence of the Spassky Fischer mats. Our top player was Johan Hjartarsson, who defeated former world champion contender Viktor Korchnoi in 1988. During their games, the Soviet-born player became an enemy of Iceland because his constant smoking was seen as a tactic to unbalance the younger player. It might even have been influential in raising awareness about second-hand smoke, in Iceland. I was far from immune from this enthusiasm. My grandfather caught me playing with his chess pieces when I was five and taught me the game. I have no medals for playing sports as a child, but I have two medals for chess. But I was never more than an average player. Mostly I loved playing against my grandfather, and when I realized that I was winning every game we played, I became disheartened and mostly abandoned chess. Two weeks before my grandfather died, my then 12-year-old cousin, who had also been taught to play by him, was a member of a team which won the national championship for their school. Incidentally, this cousin of mine runs a great coffee shop in downtown Akureyri next to the Museum of Arts. While Iceland was experiencing a chess renaissance, Bobby Fischer became more and more eccentric. 
The chess world lost its patience with his shenanigans and refused to cave to his demands for the 1975 World Championship. Fischer's refusal to play by the rules set out by FIDE made Soviet player Anatoly Karpov world champion by default. Bobby Fischer disputed this. He would claim to be the reigning champion. This view was even endorsed by the United States House of Representatives, which passed a resolution in 1986 recognizing him as the world champion of chess. From what I understand, this was supposed to be a joint resolution of both houses of the American legislature, and it seems to have disappeared before being voted on in the Senate. For 20 years, Bobby Fischer did not play any official games of chess. Originally, that might have been a tactical choice if we take him at his word. But I really don't play too much. Because if I play somebody, I'm just giving away my tricks. In 1992, Bobby Fischer signed up for a rematch with Boris Spatsky. It was billed as the World Championship match. This turned out to be a deciding moment in his life. The match took place in what remained of Yugoslavia, that is, Montenegro and Serbia. This was during the Yugoslav wars, and the country was under a UN sports embargo. Of course, the Yugoslav government used the match for propaganda while atrocities were being committed nearby. Fischer won the match, and subsequently the United States began legal proceedings against him. Boris Spassky, by then a French citizen, was mostly ignored. So Bobby Fischer became a fugitive of sorts. While there was little done to apprehend him, he could not return to his native country. Things changed after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. By September 2001, Bobby Fischer was living in the Philippines. A few hours after the attacks, he was interviewed by a local radio station and made his views known. His remarks were often described euphemistically as being critical of U.S. and Israeli foreign policy. That is true, in a way, but it was also a wildly anti-Semitic rant, the details of which are widely available. He also expressed his opinion that the attacks were in fact a good thing. The United States had been happy to ignore Bobby Fischer for years, but now they began actively pursuing him. By 2004 he was being detained in Japan, having been stripped of his passport. So he sent a plea for help to Iceland. The fact that Iceland responded by granting Bobby Fischer a citizenship has been met with confusion by many commentators. I think there are three main reasons for this decision by the Icelandic parliament. The first reason is gratitude. In general, people understood how important the 1972 match had been for Iceland. While Fischer's antics had been disliked by Icelanders at the time, they also meant more publicity for the country. It was also the gratitude of the Icelandic chess community for the influence which the 1972 match had had on the game status within the country. The group which fought for Fischer's cause in Iceland was not united by politics, but rather a love for chess. 
The second reason is that Fisher was seen as a genius who had lost his mind. His behavior and racist remarks were seen as proof that he was suffering from a mental illness and needed help. Since Fisher's anti-Semitism had been underreported for decades, most people assumed it was a sign of degeneration in his later life. The third reason is political and needs a bit of history to be understood. For decades, Iceland had a United States military base at Keplerik. The story of the base is interesting in itself, but that might be a whole different episode. The presence of the United States military in Iceland and the country's membership of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization has, from the start, been heavily debated in Iceland. Usually there has been a majority support for both, but there has always been a sizable minority in opposition. In political terms, this was split between the left on the one hand and the middle to right on the other. In addition to this, there was a regional difference in opinion. The population around the base relied on it economically. During the Cold War, Iceland was strategically important. It was a link between America and Europe. When the Cold War ended, many in the United States began to question the need for a continuing presence in Iceland. From 1991 to 2003, David Otson was the Prime Minister of Iceland. He belonged to the right-wing Independence Party and did his best to ensure that the United States kept the base running. In fact, he had been friendly to the United States long before then. There are even diplomatic cables from the embassy in Reykjavik extolling his virtues from when he was a student in the early 70s. David Otton was a firm ally of George W. Bush. Before the invasion of Iraq, Iceland became a part of the so-called Coalition of the Willing. These were countries which supported the United States and Britain in their military intervention in Iraq. This was wildly unpopular in Iceland, and was likely partly responsible for the Prime Minister's Independence Party losing 7 percentage points in the election of 2003. For me, it is clear that David Hudson saw his support of the invasion of Iraq as reinforcing the relationship between the United States and Iceland. And he might even have understood it as a clear quid pro quo. Iceland would be rewarded for joining the coalition of the willing by the continued, undiminished presence of the United States military at the base in Keplerik. Just a few months after the invasion of Iraq, it became public knowledge that the U.S. government, in particular Donald Rumsfeld, Secretary of Defense, wanted to drastically reduce the operation at the Keplerik base. For David Otten, this was a shocking betrayal. By 2005, he was winding down his political career as Minister of Foreign Affairs and was thus in a prime position to answer Bobby Fischer's pleas. Other members of the Icelandic government and parliament were not particularly enthusiastic about getting involved with Bobby Fischer's case, 
But David Otson liked taking a symbolic stand to prove his own bravery. And the Icelandic public tends to be appreciative when the country defies more powerful nations. David Otson was also still mad at George W. Bush and his government. His intervention secured that Bobby Fischer was granted an Icelandic citizenship. The former world champion of chess landed in Reykjavik in March 2005. Since I lived less than a kilometer away, I heard the plane, but despite my early interest in chess, I stayed away. The scene at the airport was a circus broadcast on live TV. There were some chess fans there, as well as young people who appreciated the show. The group of people who had fought to get Fischer to Iceland assumed that they could get him to play or teach chess. Their hopes were dashed as this exchange recorded during the trip to Iceland, makes clear. But as a grandmaster in Iceland, yeah, yeah. according to law, yeah. you are entitled to a salary. <laughs> and every Icelandic grandmaster in chess, they are paying, their, they have been paid salaries, provided that uh, you do some teaching in chess, oh, no, or even no, possibly uh, play for Iceland. In no, I hate chess very much. No, I, I, I don't need the money. No, I don't need okay. it. I'll, I'll wait, I'll skip it. <laughs> so you're not... I hate chess, I hate chess, really. You hate chess? Yeah. So you're not planning on claiming the Grandmaster's salary? No, 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 no. Fisher also embarrassed his Icelandic benefactors repeatedly by his reference to the Jews and what he thought of them. From what I can tell, he managed to alienate most of the people responsible for getting him to Iceland. Afterwards, Fisher mostly faded away. From time to time there would be minor mentions of him in the media, but mostly he was treated as a sad example of a once great man who was best left alone. Bobby Fischer died in early 2008. By then his most important benefactor, David Otten, had left politics to become the head of the central bank, a job he kept until the crash of the Icelandic economy later that year. Fisher's funeral and burial was a rather secretive and bizarre affair. He was buried near a country church, and his grave has become a tourist attraction, championed by people who happily ignore his racist views. There has even been talk of a statue, which sounds like a really bad idea. That is it for today. Thanks to Sean Pitchiton, Jace Newston, Vaidavan Halstare, Emily Cooper, Evan Williams, Jon Helgerson, and all my other supporters. And special thanks to Brianna, a friend of the podcast. I am Olignist Solerson, and this has been Stories of Iceland, episode 51 Bobby Fisher in Iceland. <laughs>